Welcome back. Would you open, please, with me to Mark chapter 1. We're continuing where we left off last week. Mark chapter 1. As we've talked about, Mark just kind of jumps right into it. There's no story of the birth of Jesus or his ancestry or anything like that. He just kind of jumps right into it with verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we saw the baptism and temptation of Jesus last week. And we're going to begin today in verse 14, seeing his preaching and the first disciples that Mark records him calling. If you found that, would you stand with me, please? And I'm going to read our passage. This is verses 14 to 20, just a short section for today. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us the Gospels in your word. That you've given us the history of your time here among us on earth when you dwelt in human flesh that you have given us a record of some of what you taught and some of what you did and so we thank you for this book that we are studying and this opportunity to study this section of it today father i know that apart from you i can do nothing and so i ask for you lord to fill me with your holy spirit to teach accurately and clearly and boldly what you have for us today i pray for each one here anyone joining us online that you would give us ears to hear that we would want to know what you have to say for us to say to us and that we would want to obey and respond to that in the way that you lead us to do so i pray that everyone who is hearing these words and reading these words with me today would come away with a greater sense of purpose of who you are and what you have called us to do. And we'll give you the praise for what you do in response to this request. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The last two times with our introduction and then our first section of the book of Mark, I have shared with you the theme of the book. And this is how I'm wording it for right now. I may tweak it a little bit along the way. But the idea here is that Mark is focused on Jesus as the suffering servant. He is the servant. And the call and cost to being his disciple. He's going to call disciples. He's calling people. We're going to read about four of them today. We're going to read about others as we get further into the gospel. We know that he is still calling people today to follow him. And what is the cost to that? What is the meaning of being one of his disciples. So we'll begin to explore that today. We're going to spend months going through this book, and we will be able to clearly define, hopefully as we go, 
what a disciple is and what he is called to do. But we're going to get a start on it today. And I have three main ideas for you from these verses. First, in verse 14, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And you're here. You've read this. We've talked a little bit about the gospel last week. You probably have a pretty good idea what that is, but we're going to make sure that we have a crystal clear understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God in verse 14. Followed by, Jesus preached both repentance and faith. It needs to be both. He preached both. We need to understand that both are part of the gospel. Repentance and faith, that is verse 15. And a couple verses later, verse 17, we're going to see Jesus called disciples to follow him. And, and again, he, he calls two different sets of brothers, two pairs, four total in this passage. But he called his disciples, and I believe he is still calling disciples to follow him. What does that mean? What is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We're going to explore that as well when we get to it. So starting off with that first main point, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, verse 14. But before I go back to verse 14, we need to understand something. Between verses 13 and 14, a year goes by. Well, where do you get that, Bob? It's not in my Bible, not in my footnote. Well, what we have are the synoptic gospels, the see together gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have basically the same material in a little bit different order, a little different um, focus or nuance. And then John is in a different order and if you dig into you can do this on your own dear dig into john chapters two three four you'll see what's going on here uh commentator john phillips described it this way between verses 13 and 14 we must make room for the passing of a whole year during this period the lord performed his first signs and miracles and gave some of his earliest teaching and he traveled back and forth between galilee and judea the miracles were performed mostly in Galilee, think of the wedding at Cana, and the teaching was given primarily in Judea. This period has been called the year of obscurity. You'll find that if you look up a commentary or a, a reference Bible, study Bible, you'll probably find the year of obscurity. And we wouldn't know about it at all if we didn't have John's account of this. So we are grateful that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us a little bit more. But a year has gone by between we had the baptism and then the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, 40 days. He was tempted of the devil. We have the reference to the wild beasts here in Mark. And then Satan is tempting him. Angels are ministering to him. And the end of it is that he was victorious. He said no to the devil. We know from Matthew and Luke that he quoted scripture. And the devil left him for a time. That's where we pick it up now in Mark in verse 14. Now after John was put in prison... Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God after John was put in prison. We know that this is John the Baptist, the one who was baptizing in the wilderness, the one Jesus came to to be baptized in the Jordan River. This is that John. And he was put in prison. Why? Because he told the leader of that area, Herod Antipas, you are doing wrong. What was he doing wrong? Well, he was doing many things wrong. But the one that we know about that became the big deal is that he married his sister-in-law who as i understand was also his niece so it is a mess it's what we would call incest it is a sin and herod although he was an edomite was king of the jews is the title that caesar had given him he had, was appointed as king over the jews even though he was not jewish and it was unclean it was wrong it was sin for him to do that and john the baptist didn't hold back and he he said this is sin stop you shouldn't have her and Herod said, okay, fine. 
take him to the dungeon. And that's where he was. John the Baptist, we know from, again, the parallel accounts in John, in his gospel, that he made a statement that he, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. And that's kind of what's going on here. When Jesus came to be baptized of John in the Jordan, that was probably the height, the most people who were coming out to the wilderness to John to be baptized. Why were they being baptized? Remember, because they were repenting of their sins. They were confessing their sins, saying, we, even though we are Jewish, we need to confess our sin, and we need a savior, a rescuer. And so John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus and announced that he was coming and even baptized him. We know that he, he, John, heard the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. We, again, know that from a parallel account in the Gospels. But at that point, Jesus went into the wilderness further for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted, and John's ministry had probably reached its climax in a sense, and he then got into it with Herod, and now he's in jail. He has a prison ministry, but not the kind that we think of. So he's in a dungeon, and now Jesus comes on the scene, and with John temporarily out of the picture, and we, we know the rest of the story, he's eventually executed, so he's not going to have a public ministry again. Jesus begins what we think of as his public ministry. Here's a map we can talk through a little bit. It says that Jesus came to Galilee. So Jerusalem is down here. And somewhere around here at the Jordan, Bethany beyond Jordan is the traditional site, is where Jesus was baptized. So he started off up here with his family. He lived in Nazareth. He came down here, made that 70-mile journey in order to be baptized. And then, from John's Gospel, we know he was in and around Judea, went back and forth. But here we are on this map. It's number three. He's going from Jerusalem, from Judea, up to Galilee. So when I say up, I mean north. They would have said down because Jerusalem is a high point. So they would have said going down, even though he's going north. And he's going up here to Nazareth. And you can see the Sea of Galilee. That's important, this Galilee region. And the Jews called it the Sea of Galilee. Anybody else would have called it a lake. We'll get into that in just a minute. He came to Galilee from Judea. And why did he leave? Well, Herod was over Judea. And so if for no other reason than safety, he moved his base of operations. We also know from Matthew the prediction that he would have his time in Zebulun and Naphtali. He would be a light in the darkness, Galilee of the Gentiles. During that time, when he was moving northward from Judea to Galilee, that's where we have John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. This is that time frame. Galilee itself... We're talking about the, the northernmost region of Palestine. It was a, a densely populated area. Um, someone said that this was the region where Roman, Greek, and Jew intermingled. So it was a, a Gentile population as much as it was a Jewish population. And Jesus, as we'll see, spent most of his time in and around Galilee, and more specifically in the town of Capernaum. That became his base of operations. What was he doing there? Well, our text tells us that he was preaching, or you could say he was proclaiming, he was heralding, he was speaking the words of God. He had a message, and he was giving it. You can notice some similarities in what Jesus said to what John had said. So understand, whatever you may know about Jesus, whatever you may think about Jesus, he was a miracle worker, certainly. 
he was a good man. He went around doing good, is the way it's described elsewhere in the Bible. But this was his primary ministry, proclaiming, heralding, preaching. And what we have here is a, a description of what he's going to say. He's preaching. What is he preaching? The gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, we talked about gospel last week. I know you know this. What does gospel mean? What does the word mean? Good news. Now let's have more than two of you say it. The word gospel means good news. That's better. Gospel means good news. The good news about what? The good news about salvation. And here it says the good news of salvation of the kingdom of God. So there's a sense in which this is both the good news about God and the good news from God. Does that make sense? The good news of the kingdom of God. So that was the first point. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go. But then second point, Jesus preached both repentance and faith. Let's see what he says in verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When it says saying, we just look over that because we're trying to get to what he said. He, this is what he was saying. As he went around the area of Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God, the good news, this is what he said. These are the first recorded words in Mark. And we've talked about this too. Mark was less concerned about giving us long sermons or even long parables. He has a few, but he's all about the action. So he's given us summaries. And he's about to tell us in summary what Jesus preached when he preached. What was it? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I'm going to divide that into two pairs to help us understand this. There are two proclamations. There are two statements that Jesus was making. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. We're going to take those individually. And then there are two commands as well. Repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe. Believe on God. Turn to God. That summarizes his entire preaching very well. What does it mean that the time is fulfilled or the time has come? Well, there, from what I understand, there are two different Greek words. One is chronos. It just means time in order, the way we think of it. Here, here's my watch. This happened at 3 o'clock the other day. This isn't that word. There's another word, kairos. This one means the strategic opportunity, the decisive time. And you're correct, there is a different one for ages of time. But in reference to what we would just use time for, instead of it happened the other day at 3 o'clock, this is at just the right time, at the perfect time. Somebody paraphrased it this way. The strategic time for the kingdom of God is now. Now is your opportunity. Don't let it pass you by. That's what Jesus was saying. And he says, now is the time. The kingdom of God is close. It has come near. It is at hand. It has arrived. So Jesus is presenting the kingdom of God being at hand. Why? Because the kingdom of God, in a sense, is in him. He represents the kingdom. In the Old Testament, all the predictions of the kingdom were future. And now is the time. Now the kingdom is coming close to you. He's talking to people who were alive at that time. And he's saying, the kingdom is here. The kingdom, it, there's a sense in which the kingdom is here and now. 
because he is there. Someone said he himself was the center and substance of the good news concerning the kingdom. Here's how I'm going to say it. I have a rhyme for you that might help you remember this, hopefully. The kingdom is near because the king is here. You got that? Why is the kingdom of God all of a sudden coming on you? Because the king is here. Who is the king? Jesus. He is here, and therefore the kingdom is nearby you. It is close to you. Why does this matter? Edmund Hebert, one of the commentaries I'm reading from Mark, I'm going to paraphrase what he said, but that people's response to Jesus defines their relationship with his kingdom. Why does it matter that the kingdom has come close? Is that now you have to interact with it. Now you are forced to a decision of what you're going to do with Jesus, the king, and what you're going to do in response to his kingdom. Are you going to believe in him? Are you going to submit to him? Or are you going to defy him? It's some of the stuff that we were looking at at Revelation, isn't it? That the kingdom is here and you must respond, you must choose. That's why this matters. So if we summarize, as Vernon McGee did, the first part of this, the gospel of God is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. The kingdom of God is drawing near. So what do we do with that? Here are the commands. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith. And you say, Bob, I know this. Yes, I, I trust you do. Why do we go over the gospel week after week after week after week? Because Bob can't remember anything else. That's probably close. But because we need it. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another in this place. I had a really bad week. I faced a lot of trials this week. We need to remember that God is in control. He loves you. He loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to deliver you from your sin problem. I am really struggling with this sin area. I, I can't seem to get victory. You need to remember that Jesus Christ died to take the penalty for your sin. He rose again. And in his power, we are no longer slaves to sin. We have to apply the gospel to our lives. It's not just, okay, yeah, I know what repentance is. Yeah, I know what belief is. I've got that. I'm saved. I'm fine. No, we, we need this. There's a reason we have four gospels. He knew we needed to hear it a lot. There's a reason that we have the gospel repeated so often in the second half of the New Testament. Because we needed to hear it a lot. By God's grace, we're going to keep hearing it a lot. What is this? Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is to turn away from. We've talked about repentance. Repentance is to change your mind, a change of mind, to do that U-turn, change of mind, change of heart that results in a change of action. And the believe part is the turning to. I'm going to turn away from the wrong direction I'm going. I'm going to turn to go in the right direction. That's toward God, toward his son, Jesus. I don't want you to have it as two different things in your mind. Somebody said it's one action that happens in two parts. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. I heard this week of a sailboat that capsized just offshore. Not, not nearby here. It was in Florida and it was years ago. Sailboat capsized. So the people who were on the sailboat now were thrown into the water and now they're clinging to the upside down boat. And they're far enough offshore that the people on shore can see what's going on but they can't do anything to help. It's too far offshore for those people to swim back. So they have a dilemma. They're just going to hang on until somebody can come. And it took a while. But rescuers came, and they took jet skis out there. And here are the people 
in the water hanging on to their capsized boat. They have a decision that they have to make at that point. In order to be rescued, they have to let go of the sailboat and grab onto their rescuer and ultimately that jet ski. Does that make sense? You, if you just keep hanging onto the sailboat, you can't be rescued. Jesus has provided rescue to us, and we must turn from the sin that so easily besets us. We must turn from the sin that would otherwise send us to hell and turn and reach out for him, for his free offer of salvation. Those are the two parts, but it's only one act. Furthermore, some people think that repentance is all about feelings. It's just, I feel sad about my sin. I feel bad that I sinned. That's good. It's good to have a conscience that is trained by the, the word of God and the spirit of God to, to prick and tell us, that's wrong, don't do that. That's good. The Holy Spirit himself convicts us. The word of God convicts us. So it's good. But emotion, just feeling sorry for my sin is not enough. There have been people through the ages that they're going to beat themselves or they're going to cut themselves or do other bad things to harm themselves because they're going to punish themselves for what they've done wrong. That doesn't do anything, folks. The punishment for my sin was laid on Jesus on the cross. He was crucified in my place. He shed his blood for me. And there's nothing I can do to atone for my sin. Repentance isn't just, I feel sorry for my sin. I feel bad about it. It's not a feelings kind of word. It is an action word. It is not simply, okay, I know I sinned. I shouldn't do that anymore. It's I'm going to turn to God and ask him to help me stop doing it. Help me not to do it again. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul wrote that godly sorrow produces repentance. There will be godly sorrow that goes along with our repentance. But that is not the same thing as repentance. Repentance is going to be action. Showing not that I'm just that I'm sorry for sin, but I'm sorry enough not to do it again. What about believe? We had a good conversation in a Bible study I was in this week about belief. <coughs> belief in the mind versus belief in the heart. You know there's a difference, right? I can rationally know Jesus was a good person. Maybe he was a good teacher. I can even rationally know Jesus is the son of God. We're going to see in our next section that the demons knew that he was the son of God. They aren't saved. So it's not good enough for me just to have these facts, this good theology up in my brain. I have to believe it with my heart. And that's what this idea of believe is. I have a quote from David Guzik for you. Believe means much more than knowledge or agreement in the mind. It speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. Those are some synonyms. Because sometimes we get sort of used to believe, faith, that's fine. But it's a dependence, it's a trust that we are placing on God. To lean on him, yes. Um, G. Campbell Morgan said that we need to rest in him to let our hearts find ease in him. That's faith, that's dependence, that's trust. So Jesus came and he said, it's time. The kingdom of God is here. And here's how you need to respond. You need to repent and you believe. If there's anybody here today that you've never done that before, 
This is your invitation. This is your day to repent, to say, God, I realize I'm a sinner and I'm turning my back on that. I'm turning back on old life. If you're a child, it may not be a lot in your history. If you're an adult, you may have done things that nobody in this room knows about. But whatever it is, however much you think it is, it is enough sin to send us to hell. And you're going to turn your back on it and say, Lord, save me. I don't deserve it. I can't do it myself. But save me. And believe on him and call on him. So we've covered two of our points. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he preached both repentance and faith. And now we're going to lead into this third point. Jesus called, and he still calls, disciples to follow him. This summary of the message in Mark's gospel immediately precedes the call of these four disciples. So we have, here's Jesus' message and his method, if you will. The method in, involves calling these fishermen. One of my resources, the Bible Knowledge Commentator, kind of ties these two things together. He, the author there says, Mark made clear that to repent and believe in the gospel is to break with one's old way of life and to follow Jesus, to make a personal commitment to him in response to his call. What do we mean by that? It means that my life isn't going to look the same. It means that he's calling me to do something. If I truly repent and believe, like Jesus is calling people to do, then my life is going to change. It may change as dramatically as these fishermen. It may change in more subtle ways, but it's going to change. And if your life hasn't changed, then you need to ask yourself and ultimately ask God whether you have repented and believed the gospel. See, 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New in character, new in design, new in form. Life is going to change. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we have to clean ourselves up or do anything on our own to become saved. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that there will be works that stem from our salvation. If we are saved, we will have works. We'll talk about that in James, young people and men, as we get further into our study in that book. If we could save ourselves, then that would be works, and that would contradict, you know, Ephesians 2, 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You all may also note Titus 3, 5. Not of works that we have done, but by his own righteousness he has saved us. So when we repent and believe, our lives will begin to change. And this is how these men's lives change. Look at verse 16. And as he, that's Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. How many of you like to fish? A few of you, yeah. Some of you really like to fish, good. You know what fishing is like? Sometimes it is wildly exciting and you just can't pull into the boat fast enough or onto the dock or whatever you're doing. And then there are the other times where it is patience having its perfect work in you, right? God called fishermen. 
And some of those strengths that they would have had as fishermen are what he's going to use. And now I'm going to talk a minute about the Sea of Galilee. If you haven't seen it that often in the Gospels, maybe that's because it's called different things. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's actually a reference to it in the book of Numbers, and it's called the Sea of Chenereth. Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. I told you that the Jews called it a sea. The Gentiles called it a lake. That's probably the reason Luke has it as the lake. And then the Sea of Tiberias is what John refers to it as. What is this thing? This is a freshwater lake and about 13 miles long, about 7 miles wide. And I didn't know this, but it's 690 feet below sea level, which makes it the, the lowest body of fresh water on earth. This little lake. Lowest body of fresh water on earth. And as such, it was home to a thriving fishing community. And it says here that Jesus saw Simon and Andrew. Would you notice that he saw Simon and Andrew? I, I enjoy reading John Phillips' commentary because he is a good storyteller. So here's how he described this. He saw Simon. Everyone saw Simon, or at least heard him. Simon was always the center of a crowd. He was always where the action was. But Jesus saw more than that. He saw Peter. He saw Simon casting his net, but at the same time he saw 3,000 souls being saved by a single sermon that Peter would deliver on a later Pentecost. He saw Andrew too. Because in his own quiet way, Andrew was as big a man as his blustering brother Peter. Each time we meet Andrew in the Gospels, he's bringing someone else to Jesus. And the Lord saw that. We tend to overlook the quiet man, if I could say, the one who's the servant, the behind-the-scenes kind of personality. We tend to overlook that. Jesus didn't. Jesus saw Simon, and he saw Andrew. And I'm here to tell you today, he sees you. He sees you as you are right now, on this Sunday in June, 2022. But he also sees those of you who are his disciples, his followers, what you can become in the power of the Holy Spirit and the ways he can use you to do things that you can't even imagine right now. And he sees all that. And as he looked at them, he saw the potential, if you will, in Simon and Andrew. As we look at what John tells us, we know that Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist. Possible, John MacArthur thinks, that Peter had been as well. But they returned to their fishing after John the Baptist's arrest. It seems like they were kind of going back and forth. I'm following Jesus, I'm fishing. And that even happened after his death, didn't it? And his resurrection. So they had already met Jesus, they'd already spent some time with Jesus. And what are they doing? They're, they're fishing, they're casting their net. Some of you have seen this maybe in, in a movie or something, probably about a nine-foot net or so, and it has weights on it so somebody can cast this thing into the water and it'll sink, and they can pull it back out and it'll kind of scoop the fish, and hopefully they'll get more fish than other debris or other animals. And that's what they're doing. They're casting this net because, why? Because they're fishermen. And this is a vocation that God is calling them from, but he's calling them to what they already know. God uses the personality he created you with, the talents that he's given you, the life experiences that you've had. He's, he's able to use those things. So he's choosing fishermen because what does he say? He's going to make them into fishers of people. And the same gifts 
skills that they've developed, of being persistent, of being patient, that's going to be valuable in the Lord's work. Verse 17, then Jesus said to them, here's his command, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. What does that mean? Well, we just see, okay, follow me, follow me around, follow the leader. Yes, it is that. But this was a call to discipleship. It was the way a disciple would come to a rabbi and say, let me follow you. Or in this case, Jesus is asking them, come follow me. In these few English words, Jesus is describing what the Christian walk, the Christian life, the way is all about. It's following him following in his footsteps, becoming more like Jesus. Jesus looks for people who will commit to him, who will follow him, who will learn from them, from him. Um, the, the process in the first century, if you were going to be a disciple, a follower of somebody else, it was more like an apprentice than a student. Because all the little boys, at least, went to what we would consider elementary school. They, they went to the synagogue, and they learned each day. And then they finished that, grammar school, whatever you want to call it, and they began to learn a trade. They were apprentices. And from what I understand, those that showed the most promise, they were very diligent in learning in synagogue school, learning the things of God, then they might get chosen to go on to what would be more like middle school or high school for us. And then those, most of them are going to end up, after that, they're going to go into a trade. But those who were the elite, the ones who were very motivated to learn, they would go on and do more, more like college or seminary. And at that point, if they had gotten through all of that, then they could choose a rabbi and they would go to that person, that teacher, and say, I would like to be your student, disciple, your apprentice, your follower. And if the rabbi said yes, then they would live. They would move in with that person and live day to day. See all the interactions. Learn, yes, more book knowledge, but learn by experience. Learning how that master, that rabbi thought and the way he applied the scriptures and interpreted the law is what they would have done back then. So normally a disciple sought out the teacher to follow. But Jesus is handpicking, and eventually he will pray and choose 12 disciples of his own. He's inviting them to follow. Come be with me is the first thing. And, and we'll see that in a few weeks in our passage in Mark. That the very first thing we're called to do when we're called to follow Jesus is to be with him as much as and maybe more than anything else, the call to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is a call to be with him, to be in his presence, to learn from him. I think we understand the analogy of fishers of men, that fishers of people, the idea of evangelism, that we are going to share the gospel. That's what he's going to, he's going to send them out to find more men. Verse 18 is their response. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him followed him as apprentices, as disciples. Verse 19, 
When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. This is the second set of fishermen brothers. And we know from other passages, it seems that their mother, Salome, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were sisters, which would have made them cousins, if that's correct. So that very well, maybe they grew up together, they were related. And what are they doing? They're mending their nets. Well, that's what fishermen do. They're either casting their nets or they're mending their nets. Well, both are important. And what I thought was kind of interesting is that this word for mending their nets is the same word, or a very related word, that's used over in Ephesians 4.12. Ephesians 4.12 says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the equipping, that's what they're doing. They're mending their nets so that they can use them again. But that's exactly what Jesus intends for the church to do, for the leadership of the church to be equipping those who will go out to equip the saints. It means, according to Strong, complete thoroughly to repair or adjust, to join together, to restore. And he calls them, verse 20, and their response is the same. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. They left their father Zebedee. The call to discipleship ultimately is a call to leave everyone and everything else. That doesn't mean that I say, sorry, mom and dad, sorry, Rochelle, I've been called to be a disciple. I now have nothing to do with you. That's not what it says. But our vertical relationship with God then becomes more important than any earthly relationship, including family members. Here's how Jesus said it in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, by comparison, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also cannot be my disciple. Being a follower, being this apprentice of Jesus means that no earthly relationship can be as close as the one that I'm supposed to pursue with Jesus. It says here that Zebedee is left in the boats with whom? With hired servants. That tells us a couple things. Tells us that Zebedee very well may have been well off. He was doing well enough that he could hire people to work for him. It wasn't just the family business. He had employees as well, to put it in modern terms. So this suggests a couple things to us. First, that James and John weren't totally abandoning their dad to run the business himself. So that's good. But beyond that, it's also telling us that it's quite possible James and John were better off financially. They weren't the poorest of the poor. This is a family business that they're part of that is big enough to have uh, hired employees. And the idea might be the same as what we saw with Mark, with at least one household servant, people who are a little bit more well-off. We're going to see Politically, financially, other ways, he has the whole gamut represented in his 12 disciples. But these first ones seem like, as businessmen and fishermen, that they were doing pretty well. We'll come back to some of those ideas as we get further into it, but that's the main points that we've been talking about for today. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. He preached both repentance and faith. They have to go together. And then Jesus called disciples to follow him. So, Simple questions as we finish this out. Do you believe the good news about Jesus? The good news of the kingdom of God that we've been talking about. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that Jesus came to live and die in our place to deal with our sin problem? And are you willing to turn from that sin and turn to God? If you've never done that, you can do that today. You can do that right now. You can talk to God, tell him what we just talked about. That you recognize the sin problem within you and that you desire him to rescue you and save you from the penalty of that sin. Believers, those of you who are believing in what we just said, the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us, are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Are you reminding yourself on a daily basis, applying the gospel to your life? And are you telling it to others? Are you sharing the good news? Are you encouraging other believers with the good news? Then are you experiencing life change through the power of the Holy Spirit? Living in you as you follow Jesus as disciple. Is your life changing? Is it different from what it was a month ago, a year ago, five years ago? Is your life changing to become more like Jesus? If it's not, you need to figure out what's wrong. With his help, let the Holy Spirit show you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone here this morning who isn't sure that you know Jesus? Maybe it's been a head knowledge. I, yeah, I know what a definition of repentance is. I know what a definition of faith and belief is. But it's never really gotten inside you. It hasn't been something that you personally believe. Is there anyone who would say, that describes me this morning, but I am concerned about it. Bob, would you pray for me? If that describes you, would you make eye contact with me right now or lift your hand and put it back down? Anyone? So believers, is your life changing to be more like Jesus? Are you committed to follow him? Are you committed to place your relationship with him above other relationships? Is there anyone who would say, Bob, God is showing me something specific in my life today that needs to change, and I would appreciate you praying for me as I obey and follow what he's telling me. If that describes you this morning, same thing. Either lift your hand and put it back down or make eye contact with me. Father, you know our hearts. You know that we are flesh. You remember that we are dust. But Lord, you've sent your Holy Spirit to breathe new life into us, to resurrect us, in a sense, to give us spiritual life. And Lord, you, you said yourself that you have come that we may have life and that we would have it in abundance. not just material blessings but to live the life that you have for us and experience your true blessings Lord I pray for those who are committing or recommitting themselves to a change to become more like you to be your disciple that you would work in hearts that you would draw us closer to you and that we would all continue to believe the gospel and share the gospel. To be the fishers of men, the fishers of women that you have called us to be. 
We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.